If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to the book of Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. It's the ninth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts. And then you have Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Book number 9 in the New Testament. If you do not have a Bible with you, please use one of the Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you, under one of the seats. If you don't have a Bible in a translation that you understand, maybe you go home and you only have these and vows and things like that that you don't understand, take the Bible with you. It's okay. We want you to have a copy of the scriptures that you understand. And the NIV version that we use under the seats is pretty, pretty good balance um, in understanding, you know, what it's saying in a language, you know, that you understand an English language with a translation that makes sense. Um, while you're turning to that, I want to just talk a little bit about what, what I'm going to be talking about for the next few weeks here. Um, we're not going to be starting a new series. Our next series doesn't start until the end of this month, the beginning of October. So we have a few open weeks here and, and I wanted to share something with you this morning that I think would be hopefully simple, but appropriate in terms of where many of us are at different points in our lives. Um, And it begins with a question. Have you ever helped someone and the outcome of helping them was disappointing? Have you ever given some of your time to someone or maybe some of your money or some of your wisdom or advice? Maybe you've shared part of your life with someone and maybe it's been a moment. Maybe it's been a week. Maybe it's been years And the outcome doesn't look like what you want the outcome to look like. And when you look back, you think, was that a waste of my time? And yet the opportunity continues to present itself for you to help or to serve. And and in the process of doing that, have you ever found yourself maybe a little jaded or a little cynical or a little hardened because you're saying, I'm giving, I'm helping, I'm doing these things that I'm doing. And you know, after a while, I just get kind of tired of doing it because it doesn't seem to make a difference. Or maybe I get hurt in the process. It doesn't just have to be spiritually that you're helping people. It can be practically that you're pouring into people. Like I said, whether it's your time or your calendar financially, spiritually, maybe you're walking with someone and helping them grow in their relationship with God. It could be something in a work environment where you're required to train someone, or maybe you're a business owner and you're responsible to educate someone. How many times if we ever had the situation maybe where you train an employee or a coworker only to have them leave the job and go get a different job, maybe a job that does better than your job, or maybe a job or a business that competes against you. I've had that happen. I've known people where that's happened to them over the years. And they, they pour all this time into the skill and the ability and the person eventually at some point walks away and it actually burns them. There's lots of different scenarios, and I think if we probably took a step back and I asked you this morning, have you ever had an opportunity to be disappointed by helping someone and have it go wrong? I think most of us would probably say, yeah. And the question that I have beyond that is, what have you done with that as a result of that? Have you become jaded? Have you become maybe a little calloused or hardened, maybe a little... um, disenchanted with wanting to help people or maybe a little discouraged. Today we're talking about um, how we can overcome that. And my message is very simple. The title is called Don't Give Up. Don't Give Up. Okay, it's pretty simple. There's not a whole lot of interpretation as to what that means. Um, You need to continue to move forward. But I'm going to show you why that's so important and what I believe Paul shows us in the book of Galatians on how we're supposed to respond to these things. So in Galatians chapter 6, we're actually going to begin looking in just a moment in verse 9. But let me explain what's happening here before we read. The book of Galatians is one of the few books that the Apostle Paul actually wrote himself. 
There's many books in the New Testament that he wrote, but many of them he wrote with a scribe or a secretary. He was so passionate about the message that he was sending to the churches in Galatia that he wrote it himself. And many believe he had a problem with his vision. So what you see earlier in the book is he says, hey, like, this is legitimately my writing. Like, you can see what large letters I'm using. And what he's saying in there is like, you can tell this isn't just coming from me through a scribe. I am so passionate about communicating this to the church in Galatia that you need to hear it. And I'm doing it right here and right now. And it was a message. The big message that he was really combating in Galatia was legalism. And that's a a word that we've heard many times in the church today. I hear people say that even today in 2018. Legalism. There's a lot of legalism in the church today. And what is legalism? Legalism says this. It says that the thing that you do makes you or has the ability to make you in better standing with God. If you do this thing, you will be in better standing with God. You will be more accepted by God. If you don't do that thing, you are not as accepted by God. And examples of things that maybe we could use that we understand today might be things like the things that you wear. If you wear a nice jacket and tie, you will be more accepted by God because attire matters. And God loves people in pants, suits, and suits, but he's not so keen on the shorts and the t-shirts. That's silly. That's legalism. You have to be at church X number of days a week. You have to go through these sets. And if you don't go through these specific steps, you're less valuable or less accepted by God. Those are legalistic things. And in the time of Paul, when he wrote this to the church, the issue was there were Jewish believers and there were non-Jewish believers. Okay? And what was happening in that situation was he was saying the Jewish believers, and there were these guys called Judaizers, they were saying the non-Jewish believers Yes, salvation is important and you can receive salvation, but you still have to act and do the things that we do as Jews. And that had nothing to do with what it meant to be a Christian. And Paul actually goes after these non-Jewish believers and he says, whoa, when you receive Christ, was it because of anything you did or is it because of everything Jesus did? All you had to do was accept him in faith. You don't have to do all of these rituals that the Jewish believers are doing to make you think that you're in better standing with God. You with me? It makes sense? That's what's going on in this book, okay? So he gives examples and he talks about this and he gets really angry at the people that try to take works and make works the reason for your salvation. And that's the, I mean, today, today, 2018, it's the same thing that people many times think you have to do certain things in order to get saved. And I'm not talking about giving your heart to Christ. I mean, certain things that you do in the church or outside the church. And if you don't do those things, your salvation will be called into question. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a free gift to us that was paid for by Jesus. And it's our faith in Christ that redeems us and saves us. Everything else is an overflow of what we do in response to what God is doing. But I'm sharing all that because one of the things he's addressing is works. And he's addressing that works are an overflow. They're a response to what's going on in your heart. But we don't just throw works out of the window, out the window. We don't say, well, because we're saved, we can do whatever we want. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Works don't save you. Works prove that you're saved. Make sense? That's the whole difference in what he's saying there. Works don't save you. Works prove that you're saved. And what he means by that is the way your life changes and transforms after Christ is the proof that Jesus is changing your life. 
That's what matters. And it's not the other way around that if you don't do these things, you can't know God. It's no, when you accept God and you accept that free gift of faith and grace, he begins changing you and transforming you. And then the proof is the way that you live differently. With me? So important, okay? So this is what he says, because these people understand works. They understand doing good. They understand loving each other and caring for each other. And Paul gives a list of all the ways that they could do it in terms of patience and unity and supporting each other. And then he gets to verse 9. And this is, I think, so important for us in verse 9. He says this, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, the contemporary English version says this, uh, words this this way in verse 9. It says, don't get tired of helping others. You will be rewarded when the time is right if you don't give up. And I'm sharing that this morning. Again, the message title is don't give up. And I'm sharing that this morning with you because I think as people, It's not about Christians or non-Christians, but as humans, we can tend to become discouraged sometimes as we do the same things. We can tend to become a little cynical. We can give our time or our efforts or our wisdom, our knowledge. We can share our lives with people. We can help, and it seems like the need always outweighs the ability to meet it. It seems like that. In fact, there are industries in our world, in our country, that if you go talk to them, they will tell you that. Go talk to any of the social industries like social work people or child protective services or people that are involved in those difficult worlds and say, do you always have a need for more people to help? And what will they tell you? Unequivocally, they'll tell you absolutely the need far outweighs our ability to do anything with it. So we do what we can with what we have, but there's always a greater need than there are people. Sounds a little bit about what Jesus said regarding eternity, where the harvest is great, but the workers are few. It's kind of the same thing in a different way. But this is reality that we live in, and it doesn't matter what area of life that you're in. There's always going to be someone that needs help. There's always going to be someone that needs encouragement. We live in a broken world, and there's more of that going on than there are people to meet that need. And if we're not careful, we can become discouraged or distraught, and cynicism and skepticism sets in, and then we walk away from it or harden our hearts, and we cross our arms, and we don't want to get involved, especially if we've been hurt. I'm sure we could tell stories of that this morning, but we won't because you'll walk out of here feeling discouraged and we don't want that to happen. But I bet we could sit around and go, here's an example of something that I have done consistently to help this person. Or I remember doing this over the years and you know what? After a while I said, what's the point? And I just become a little skeptic about what's going on. All of us have stories like that in some way. What I want to do this morning though is I want to challenge you to say, how do you beat weariness? How do you overlook the weariness so that you don't rest in weariness, that you don't become skeptical or cynical and fold your arms and say, I'm not going to help anymore. I'm not doing these things. I'm going to walk the way that I want to walk for me. I want to pursue what I want to pursue for me, and I'm not going down that path anymore. God, I love you, but I'm not helping anymore. Because that's a dangerous place for us to be. Super dangerous, and I'll explain it to you. And there's two things that I want to show you how we need to focus on in order to avoid becoming weary. So this morning, the first thing that I want to show you on how to not become weary and fall into the trap of being weary and how to not give up is to remember this. Number one, in Christ, we are created to do God's work. 
In Christ, we are created to do God's work. Here's what I mean. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do God good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's Ephesians 2.10. The CEV version says, God planned for us to do good things and to live as he has always wanted us to live. That's why he sent Christ, to make us what we are. That is so powerful. Think about what he's saying here. He's saying, God created you and created me to do good works. We have been made with a fingerprint, a DNA, a blueprint on our hearts to do good works. And what he's doing in Christ, this only happens through Christ. It can't happen outside of Christ. So we need to begin with a relationship with Jesus. But in a relationship with Christ, Christ begins to make us who we were always intended to be from the beginning. He is the restorer. He created us with a purpose. The brokenness of the world separates us from God. And if we're not careful, we can begin thinking our purpose in life is about filling our own needs and about living a life and living our lives to the max. And, you know, we'll help people here or there every once in a while. But it's really about just living life to the full by our definition. And Jesus isn't part of that. But we've been created in Christ to be remade, to be restored, so that when we recognize that who he's made you and I to be is to be people that do good works, and good works by definition mean we're submitted to the will of God, and everything that we do is supposed to be birthed out of what God wants us to do to reach others, our lives are changed. We are created a specific way by a creator to be a specific way. I've, I've told this story before in our church over the years, but it just always strikes me so, so strong when I think about it. But after our first child was born and Sarah was just a few weeks old, I remember um, Leslie having a big bone cyst that was growing on her one arm. And the cyst was getting big. And some of you have heard this before, but it was bulge. It was like the size of a golf ball. It was a pretty big bulge. And it was, it was in the bone and it was stretching her bone out. So it actually curved the bone and inside was this cyst and the orthopedic surgeon said well we're going to take it out and and what he did was he said we're going to take and we're going to cut all the way around the bulge and we're going to pull the bone off like a little cap it almost like a little like a helmet and they pulled the cap off where the bone was and then they they scooped out all this cyst it was kind of squishy not to be too graphic but you need to hear this okay so so they, they scooped all this out okay and then they left this big cavity that was in there okay and you couldn't just leave the cavity in there, so they, they took soft bone from her hip, and they extracted it from her hip, and they packed it in the bone, in, in her wrist. And they put the cap back on from the bone that was stretched out, and then they wrapped it all up. And I remember us asking him, saying, okay, now it's going to heal. He says, yes, the soft bone will heal. It'll fuse with the other bone. It'll become hard bone. And we said, yeah, but then she's going to have a bulge on her wrist for the rest of her life. And he said, no. He said, the bone knows how it was created to look. It knows what its shape is supposed to be. So as it begins to heal and become part of the wrist, it will draw that bone back in and it will reform to the shape it was always created to be. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. And sure enough, as the bone got covered and we watched it over months, it got smaller and smaller and it just looks the way that it did. So there's a little scar there, but you would never know that there was a big golf ball sized bone cyst that was there years ago. Why? Because the bone knew how the bone was designed to function. And when it understood it and it was set up in the right way, everything worked as planned. 
Can I tell you, that's the way we're created in Christ. We are not created to be selfish. Yes, we're born into sin, but we are not created to be selfish. The brokenness in the sinful world we live in makes us selfish. And all of us that have ever been a child or knows little children, or maybe you see a child in a store, especially the children in the store around Christmas, that's a great time. When kids want to just melt down and do their thing, you know what I'm talking about? I love using that example because everyone in the room's like, been there, done that. You know, that's the way it is. Selfishness is not something that we have to instill in anyone. They just have it. We all have it. But can I tell you, God didn't make us that way intentionally. He didn't make us to be selfish. He made us to know him. He made us to love him, to be loved by him, and to love others. And when we give our lives to Christ, like this is saying in Ephesians 2.10, God planned for us to do good works and to live as he has always wanted us to live. That's why he sent Christ to make us what we are. What is he saying there? He's in the process of restoring you and I to the way that we used to be before the fall. So in your heart, you are designed by God to love. You are designed by God to do good works, to breach, and to be a mouthpiece and a a billboard to the world around you of the love of Christ. And when we do that, what we find is it's incredibly fulfilling. When we make our lives about others and not ourselves, we find something that we never would have found if we just made our lives about ourselves. Giving our lives away, Jesus said, is the way that we lose it. And this is what it looks like. Being created to do good work is something that God created us to do from the very beginning. It's so super important for us to do that. God worked this way. He's changing us to look more like his son. And you know, the best example that we see of that is Jesus himself. So when I first gave my life to Christ, I didn't look like Jesus the minute after I gave my life to Christ. It's a development It's a process. And as I get older and as I spend more time with him, I allow him to change different parts of me. The same way we see our own children or maybe ourselves. When a baby is little, I love that. When children are little, and you know, we try sometimes, but when kids are really, really little, especially when they're like two days old, do you think he looks like his mom or his dad? Uh, He looks like a prune. I don't know what he looks like. Oh, I I think he has his grandfather's nose. I don't know what his grandfather looks like. People invent things because they want to see who they resemble. Now, sometimes they absolutely do. Don't get me wrong. You know, I mean, we saw this just last yesterday. I was like, okay, there were times. Do you think he looks like Pastor Nick? Do you, th- do you think she looks like Nick? Do you think she looks like Georgia? Who do you think? I, I think, yeah, it, was, well, it doesn't look like me because my hair. No, anyway, so I'm just looking. We want to see things and we want to see the resemblances. This is when you really see the resemblances, right? What happens? When they what? Grow up. You start to see the facial expressions. You start to see the little quirks. You start to see the body types that are the same, right? And the more they mature, the more they look like who? Their parents. And you see that over and over again. This is how it works with Christ. He made us a specific way. And the more you mature and the more you walk in your relationship with Christ, the more you will look like Jesus. And what does Jesus look like? John six thirty-eight through 39. Look, I didn't come from heaven to do what I want. I didn't come from heaven to do what I want. I came to do what the Father wants me to do. He sent me, and he wants to make certain that none of the ones he has given me will be lost. Instead, he wants me to raise them to life 
on the last day. Jesus didn't come for himself. Jesus came to earth for you and for me. He came to do the work of the Father so that you and I could know God. And what are we in the process of becoming as we've given our lives to Christ? More like Christ. Make sense? This is how it works. I didn't come from heaven to do what I want. So what does it mean? It means on this planet, on this earth, we do not exist for ourselves. We do not exist for our own well-being. We do not exist to just live large and do what we want to do. When we were coming back from Cleveland yesterday, we were driving into Pennsylvania. You know what the motto of Pennsylvania is? They have this sign, welcome to Pennsylvania. They have this thing underneath the signs now. You know what it says? It says, welcome to Pennsylvania. Pursue your happiness. Pursue your happiness. I'm like, dumbest thing I've ever seen. I was thinking that. I'm like, second time I saw it, I'm like, that's stupid. Pursue your happiness. Now, don't get me wrong. People come from other places of the world to the United States to pursue their dreams, right? I mean, this is a free country. We can do things in this world, in this country. No other place in the history of the world could do, and we are incredibly blessed to do that. Pursue your happiness. And I look at that and I go, my flesh says yes to that. And my spirit says, is that true? Is that how I'm supposed to live? Because if my definition of happiness is everything that my body and my flesh wants, I'm not going to live for God. I'm going to live for me. What does it look like to pursue our happiness from God's view? It's first to put him in the priority seat of our lives to say, I didn't come here for me. I exist to know God. And then I exist to give my life to him. And in the process of doing that, he gives us joy. He gives us peace. It doesn't mean that we have to, you know, sell everything we have and walk around, you know, with torn clothes and, you know, and beg for food. This is silly. People believe those kinds of things. No, it's just everything in my life is supposed to first begin with God as the first connection. Seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33 says, and all these things will be added unto you. He is number one in my life. He should be. He should be number one in every believer's life. Every individual is created. If you don't know Jesus and you're listening to this this morning, your first priority in life is to know God. Must be. And from knowing him, everything else falls into place. I didn't come from heaven to do what I want. No, I came to do what the Father wants me to do. He sent me, Jesus says, and he wants to make certain that none of the ones he has given to me will be lost. Instead, he wants me to raise them to life on the last day. This is why it's so important for you and I to know that when we reprioritize our lives and we recognize that our main priority in life is not what we want, but it's what God wants through us, there's a completely different type of response that comes from that. Joy, peace, contentment, those kinds of things come by dying to our own needs and wants in a manner of speaking and letting him open the doors of options to bless other people, to love other people and to help other people see what we have. In fact, it's the way that we love others that proves that our faith is real. Scripture is very clear about that. The way that we love others is the proof that the gospel is real. If we are self-centered and about building our own little kingdoms and worlds and don't have time to make our priorities about others, all we're saying is that Jesus died so that I could be me. And that's not true. He died so that I could become like him. He died so that you could become like him and that you could know the Father forever. 
And that's a great calling. You know, sometimes in our flesh, in our human, we look at that and go, man, that sounds boring and that sounds dry and I don't want to just give my life. I want to pursue my happiness, you know. I saw this meme years ago where people were saying, you know, they say money doesn't buy happiness, but, but money buys jet skis and I've never seen someone on a jet ski that wasn't happy. I love that meme. I'm like, that's a true story. But can I tell you, it's, a tr- it's, it's temporary. It's temporary. The things that God gives us to enjoy in this world, he wants us to enjoy. He wants us to have fun. He wants us to have fun with our families, to do things with friends. He wants us to enjoy the land. It was even the command to, to Adam in the garden. You manage it, but then you have to enjoy that which he gave us. It's all part of that. The problem becomes when we believe the priority is that the stuff gives us life. And then we get things out of order. And we'd be about building our own kingdom and not building his own. And we wonder why we get weary. And we wonder why we get tired. Because we fold our arms and we say, I'm not going to do God's work. I'm going to do mine. And we invest our time and our life in things of temporal value. And when those things begin to happen, we begin to grow further away from Christ and not closer. It's not possible to become spiritually mature and be selfish. It's not possible to be about building your own kingdom as the priority and grow close to Jesus. Actually, the closer you get to Jesus, the less selfish we become. The closer we get to Jesus, the more content we become with whatever he gives us. That's really interesting, and it's hard in this world where it's pursue your dream and follow everything you want, but that's so true. That's the way it works. We are created to do good things, and God has created us to accomplish them according to his will and to be like Jesus. He's our teacher. Now, you might hear this this morning and say, yeah, I get that, but it can be really hard to do this on an ongoing basis. How do I do this? Even if I know I'm created to do this, the second thing after recognizing we're created to do good works is this. Number two, the spirit changes and empowers us to do God's work. We have to remember that it is not our own strength that God puts in us. It's not our own strength that pulls us up, you know, uh, by our bootstraps to basically allow God to change us. No, it's the Spirit of God that gives us life. It's the Spirit of God that gives us breath. It's the Spirit of God that says, if you're created to do this, then you can trust me to give you the strength to walk it out. Make sense? God doesn't create us a certain way without giving us the resource to accomplish it. They always go together. The Spirit changes and empowers us to do God's work. And if we're walking in the Spirit, meaning if we're growing spiritually, we will not use our liberty in Christ for selfish purposes. Our freedoms in Christ, no, we're going to allow the Spirit to work through us for the purpose of helping other people. It's so important for us to remember. We have to do it through the Spirit, by the Spirit. I remember talking a few months ago to a friend of mine who was struggling with a coworker. Do you ever have like this, this coworker situation maybe or someone that you interact with on a daily base, basis that you need to interact with, but you don't want to interact with them? Maybe you don't like them very much or maybe they don't like you and there's nothing that you've done, at least that you know of, but you, you just don't like, they don't like you, but you have to interact with them all the time. I had this person reach out to me and they said, what do I do? Like, I don't even, I took a job and I think they were supposed to get it, but I ended up getting it. And, and, and now we don't get along really well, but we have to work together every single day. Sometimes I think management just like has like an experiment tank and they just do that to co-work to workers. And they're like, let's see what happens. <laughs> so I was like, well, what do you want to do? And they said, how do I grow a thicker skin? 
teach me how do I grow a thicker skin? What does it look like for me to grow a thicker skin? And, and the person who's a believer, the person knows Jesus, and I just stopped and I said, the answer to your question is not how do you grow a thicker skin? You're asking the wrong question. The question isn't how do you grow a thicker skin? The question is how do you get a bigger heart? Because what I know is that when we become more like Jesus, we don't see through the gospels Jesus growing a thicker skin. We see the heart of a savior having a bigger heart and a bigger heart and a bigger heart. The heart of Christ was not a thick skin to say, you can do whatever you're going to do to me and I'm going I'm to zap you from heaven. You don't see that kind of stuff. You don't see him saying, hey, with my hands open, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to curse you. And you know, he doesn't do that. The heart of a savior was a big heart that said, you can abuse me. You can beat me. You can abandon me and I'll still die for you. I'll hang on that cross and you can spit at me and you can stab me and you can divide my clothes up and you can mock me and I'll still say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That is not the heart of a hardened person. That is, that is the heart of a savior who loves us the heart of a savior who loves you. And that is what we're called to do. Can I tell you the only way you and I can experience that type of heart change is by letting the spirit of God transform us. We can't do it on our own. We have to walk in step with the spirit and allow him to change us so that when we see people on the surface that are salty or people that we don't get along with or situations that we don't have time for or bank accounts that maybe look too small in our mind, but God's challenging us to bless someone. When we see these circumstances that God presents, that we don't look at the surface, we look below the surface and we say, God, what are you asking me to do right now? My eyes are in your hands. My ears are yours. My life is yours. My feet are are yours. My bank accounts are yours. My calendar is yours. God, what is it that you want me to do? And, and I just be real clear about this because this is, this is a a misguided way of looking at ministry that God is not going to call you to something that's going to cause you to neglect your family. I've heard people do this over the years that it's like, it's all about the ministry and the family gets completely neglected. Now it doesn't mean that there aren't things that God wants us to do that come at a cost. But abandoning your family for the sake of the ministry makes no sense whatsoever. When God calls us to be his hands and feet, he wants it to be something that we as a family do. He wants us to show our children and our grandchildren and our sisters and our brothers that there is life that you get by dying to yourself and letting the spirit make you more like Jesus. So that as you walk it together, you realize a new way of living. And that new way only comes through life in the spirit. The apostle Paul says this in Romans 8 chapter 11. He says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I want to read that again if we can put that up. Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Stop just there for a second. What is he saying here? Paul's saying the spirit of God resurrected Jesus from the dead. That's a pretty powerful thing, don't you think? If the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ, Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. What is he saying? He's saying when we're tired, when we're weary, 
when we feel like quitting, when we ask God, maybe we just need a thicker skin, the spirit that lives in you has the power to raise you up again. And when he raises you up, he won't give you a thicker skin. He'll give you a bigger heart. He won't cause you to just run away from things and unplug. He'll refresh you with new life. He'll give you the things that you need so that when you walk again tomorrow and you get up and you put your feet planted firm on the ground, he says, don't do this in your own strength. Do it in me. Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, give life to me today so that I can be everything that you have called me to be for I was created that way. If the worship team would come as we get ready to to close this morning, I want to ask you today, do you feel like giving up? If you're here today and you've been doing good for the sake of that, and maybe it hasn't been recent, maybe it's been over months or years, and you've said, I've been continuing to try to be faithful. I've continued to do this, but you know, I'm I'm a little cynical right now, or maybe I've struggled, and, and I just feel like I'm tired, or I feel like I'm weary. And you know what you know what the answer is, Pastor Paul? The answer is just, I need a break, so I need to unplug from everything. Or you know what I need? I just need a vacation. I need to walk away. And, and listen, I'm not going to discredit the fact that there are practical things that we need to do physically for our bodies so that we can rest. But if we think for a minute that physical rest only comes and really comes by getting away from it all, then we're fooling ourselves. Because... I'm sure some of us can relate to the fact that there are times that we go away and when we come back from our getaways and our vacations, we feel like we need vacations from our vacations. Why do I feel like I need a vacation from my vacation? I feel just as tired. It was fun, but I still feel tired deep in my heart. What is that about? Because true rest and true strength doesn't come by just changing our outward circumstances. It comes by walking in the power of the Spirit. He designed you and I to do good works and he equips us through the power of the spirit to wait on him, to surrender to him and to be obedient. And can I tell you, there is no greater joy and there's no greater excitement in life that you can ever have in your life than being obedient to what God's asking you to do. I could share story after story of times when I've been tired and I've been weary and I just want to just go to bed and, and Lord, I just, I need a reset button right now. It's been a long week. It's been a long day. It's been a long semester. It's been a long decade. And then God gives an opportunity to bless someone, to speak words of life to someone, to look below the surface, to see where someone's struggling and bring them to another place. And can I tell you, in those moments when we're obedient, God breathes fresh life into us. And you can walk out of those situations going, where did that joy come from? Where did that life come from? Because you're doing what you were created to do. Are you doing it? Don't give up. Recognize who you're created to be and let the Spirit change and empower you. Would you stand with us this morning? We're just going to take a few moments and I'm going to ask you to just reflect a little bit today. Reflect a little today about who you are in Christ. What Christ has done for you and let him him search your heart a little bit today. Maybe you already know the answer to this, but ask the Holy Spirit to reveal this to you. Am I weary? Am 
am I tired of, of trying? I feel like I've helped people and I feel like I've tried, but I continue to feel disappointed. And I don't know if I have the strength to keep doing this. God, breathe new life into me. Show me what your plan is and breathe new life into me. If that's you this morning, can I tell you, Spirit of God is all willing and ready to bring you into a place of new life. Let's worship him this morning. Father, I just pray for each person in this room. I pray, Lord, that the spirit of weariness and tiredness, the spirit of disappointment maybe, Lord, or, or maybe maybe there have been people's hearts have become hardened or... Lord, I just pray that anything, Lord, that's keeping us from fulfilling what you've asked us to do would be broken this morning and that your spirit, your spirit of love and your spirit of comfort and your spirit of conviction would fill our hearts today and breathe new life into us so we would go and live as you've called us to live. In Jesus' name we pray.